0: What a week it's been. I mean, we started out last week with a total eclipse of the sun. And then yesterday, Colorado State University Rams eclipsed Oregon State. How about that? There you go. I like it. I like being on university campuses. The heart of universities, historically, Western universities, I understand, had as one of their first courses, maybe their main course, because it's a university, was the course on geography. So I'm going to give you a geography lesson this morning, just a quick one, okay? What do these towns or cities, do you think, have in common? Lincoln Beach, Oregon, Rigby, Idaho, Crowhart, Wyoming, North Platte, Nebraska? Sullivan's, Sullivan, Missouri, Carbondale, Illinois, Princeton, Kentucky, Sparta, Tennessee, and McClellanville, South Carolina. Some of you are saying, "I haven't got a clue," but you know those are. Good. And others of you are saying, "Those were towns that were in what was called this past week the path of totality for the solar eclipse. Those were the places." People, I didn't even know that phrase until last week. You know, astronomers and meteorologists and middle school science students knew the phrase. I had no idea. The path of totality. That's a that's a long word. We just should call it pot. You know, we just you know, we just <laughs> redefine the whole concept here. Okay. So the but the idea was people drove for miles, hundreds of miles. They flew in, they trained in. Some of you may have actually gone to places like Casper, Wyoming, where it only took you four hours to get there and 11 hours to get home. That's what I understand, you know. But what a deal. We went to places, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people went to a place to get in the path of the light going out at midday. And the idea is that we simply wanted a better view. We wanted a place to be to get a better view for a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience. And that's our story today. Our story today I've entitled Running to the Path of Totality. And it's the story of a little short guy up a tree out on a limb, his name was Zacchaeus. It's recorded in Luke the 19th chapter and we'll get there in just a moment. But since we're in geography, let me go just a little further. The largest town or city in the path of totality this past Monday was Nashville, Tennessee. 1.2 million folks, right in the path of the shadow. It's equivalent 2,000 years ago in the day of Jesus would be the town of Jericho. It would be that city that was in the path of totality of a different son, spelled differently, pun intended, because Jesus was on his way in the last two months of his life, he was on his way to Jerusalem, and he went through this town called Jericho, and that's where he met Zacchaeus. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do an air map like this, and I'm going to put, and Ruth, my wife, just hates it when I do this. She said, it doesn't help me at all, but, and it may not help you at all, but I just love doing this. And so, here we are. This is the Mediterranean basin. Over here are the Straits of Gibraltar. So on the north side, you've got Spain, and you've got France, and you've got Italy and Greece, and then you come to Turkey over here. And then you've got Syria and Lebanon over here, and then Israel, and you come this way, and it's Egypt. And then you've got, uh, I don't know the exact order, but Libya and Tunisia and Morocco and so forth, and some islands out here in the middle. But over here in Israel, or back in Jesus' day, Palestine, Syria, it, there, up at the top, toward the top, you have a little lake, not a little lake, a big lake, called the Sea of Galilee, and then the Jordan River, coming out of that, winds down through the Jordan River, valley, rift, and you get to the Dead Sea down here. And if you come, and Jerusalem is inland, about 20 miles from the Dead Sea. If you come back north seven miles, there's this town called Jericho. You remember that, Joshua fit the Battle of Jericho. That was hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus, and that, this is a little different town. It's a slightly different space and place. But here you have Jericho, which is a crossroads for travelers, for caravans, for military convoys, and it's the route of pilgrimage if you're going a little further south but up to Jerusalem. It's an oasis in the desert. Jericho is the oldest continuously settled city on planet Earth, according to archaeologists, maybe 10,000 years old. Certainly, it's the lowest continuously inhabited city on the Earth at 800 feet below sea level. So we're at about 4,900 feet here in Fort Collins area. This is 800 feet below sea level. It's an oasis. They have springs there. It's surrounded by desert. And it's a place where at least three times a year for the major Jewish festivals, people would come through there by the hundreds and by the thousands, and that's where our story takes place. So let, me, let me just give you a point of reference, by the way. Between Jerusalem and Jericho, you go from 800 feet below sea level to 2,500 feet above sea level in 18 miles. If you go from Loveland to Estes Park, you're going 2,500 feet, which is 800 feet less, in 30 miles. So in about half the distance, you're climbing that elevation and you're walking it, Okay. It's a dangerous route. Jesus told the story about a rich guy or some guy getting beat up and his stuff stolen. He almost killed him. And it was the story of the Good Samaritan. He tells us that story about that piece of highway, which wasn't a highway. It was just a rutted road going up to Jerusalem. But on this day, it was the path of totality. Jesus had come from Galilee. He's coming down. He's going to make that 45-degree turn and start the climb going up to Jerusalem Within 8 to 10 days of when this story occurs, he will be pinioned on a cross like like a butterfly up against the skyline. He will die. He will be resurrected in three days. He'll hang out for six weeks with his disciples talking about the kingdom. And then he'll be going back home to the Father. But we pick up the story as he's coming through the city of Jericho. In Luke 19, 1 through 10, this is how it reads. And I'd like you to read it out loud with me, if you would. There's something about reading Scripture out loud together. It's kind of cool. So let's just see if we can do it here. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was. But because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. It's interesting that the, the story of Jesus going through Jericho is in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but the story of Zacchaeus is only in Luke. And it's interesting because Luke, when you scholars talk about this, Luke has a tendency in his Gospel, these are all the truth of God, but he has the tendency to emphasize the people on the margins, people who are poor, people who are wealthy, they're on the margins because they're wealthy, people who are struggling. He's a doctor, he's a historian, maybe that's, we don't know, why? We believe all of it's inspired by the Spirit. And he doesn't, he, he actually speaks about two guys back to back. He, he, he positions the story of Zacchaeus over against the story of Bartimaeus, a blind man sitting on the outside of the city as they come in. And these are two people on the margins. Bartimaeus, and, and he doesn't name him Bartimaeus, Mark names him that. But this blind man sitting out there, he's on the margins because he's a beggar. He's on the margins because he's blind and the theology of that day by numbers of these folks would say the reason you have that sickness is that either you sinned or your parents sinned. That was sort of their theology. So he was ostracized on that basis. And here we have Zacchaeus who's not poor. He's not a beggar, He's a ripoff artist. He's on the other end. He's marginalized because he's a sinner and people recognize that. They, that's what they call him. And you see this phrase over and over again in the Gospels. You see tax collectors and sinners, prostitutes and tax collectors. You know, all the people that they think are sort of on the margins, not doing right things. They put them together. So where do we go with this story? Well, the first point I'd like to make is that getting a clear look at Jesus takes effort. This is what Zacchaeus, it simply says that Zacchaeus was short, the crowd was in his way, so he ran ahead, there's the run piece, he ran ahead, climbed a tree to get a better view of Jesus. It's interesting, this past Monday or or last Sunday afternoon, people were driving all over the place. People from Carbondale, going to Carbondale, Illinois, Casper, Wyoming, they, they had to expend an effort to get there, to get in the path of totality. It's interesting that Last week, Tim Heist had a great message and he, he tossed out some sayings that his dad used to say to him. Like, were you born in the barn or, you know, are you, are you leaving the door open, heating the whole town or whatever those sayings were. I got a couple sayings for you today. One is, anything worth doing is worth doing well. How about no pain? Yeah, see, we know those things. Anything that is productive simply takes Effort. So Zacchaeus runs ahead, climbs a sycamore fig tree. This, was, this wasn't a wide open run, I'd just like to suggest to you. He, he wasn't running up Timberline Road or down Harmony. I mean, these were not wide. This was a Middle Eastern city. The streets are crowded with people. It's feast time. You've got hundreds and thousands of people cramming through these streets, getting ready to go up the Jericho Road to Jerusalem. And, you know, if, if you've ever been in a Middle Eastern or an Asian city, in a bazaar or a souk, or I mean, the places are clamoring. It's just cacophony. It's just there are shouts. And I was brought up in South India, and they had what they call hawkers—people who would hawk their wares—and they'd call to get your attention. So you can can you feel it and see it? You're fighting your way through the crowd. Here he is, a little short guy. He's, Out of my way! I'm trying to get to an open space here, and you know, and and you can see it, you can feel it. You smell sweat. You smell spices. You smell smell. Stuff cooking, you don't want to know what that is, and you're, and you're just, and it's just this crowd. And, and there's no equivalent to that here in northern Colorado, unless maybe unless maybe you took Cheyenne's Frontier Days and overlaid it on Fort Collins Brewfest and put it all on Pearl Street in Boulder, Colorado. Maybe that would be the, maybe that would be close, but I don't think it's even anywhere close to what it was like, to the crowd and jostling and elbowing, just to get to a space where he could climb a tree. Zacchaeus wants a look. What he doesn't know is that when he does that, he's moving straight into the path of totality because Jesus the son is coming. This was a town that was famous for its palm trees It had oases and date palms were even a a product. They were an industry. So it's got a lot of palm trees, but apparently it also had these, what they call sycamore fig trees. These were not tiny trees. These were not mulberry bushes. They look like this. This is a sycamore fig tree. And here comes uh, Zacchaeus, and I I have a, a favorite Dutch artist. We have a book called He Was One of Us, and he has all these sketches of things, and he sketches his view of Zacchaeus up a tree and out on a limb. This is what it looks like. There he is. He's up there trying to get a better look. And um, we ask the question, why? Why did he do that? Well, it said, the only thing it says about the why is that he wanted a better look because he couldn't see. We, don't, we, we know hardly anything about Zacchaeus. We don't know his parents. We don't know his grandparents. We don't know any other lineage. We don't know why or how he got the job as chief tax collector. We do know that he was chief tax collector. That wasn't just any old tax collector. That wasn't just Matthew or Levi sitting at a toll booth like one of the other stories is. This was the guy in charge of the guys who were ripping off people. These were toll takers on the roads. These were people who the Roman government, to whom the Roman government said, we want a census so we know how to tax people. We we want to know how many we have and who they are and where they are so we can get their money. That's where Jesus was born in the middle of that, Mary and Joseph had to go for a census thing in order for taxation from the Roman government. And so the Romans would say, here's what we need. This is how you're going to tax him. Whatever you get on top of that, Levi or Zacchaeus, it's yours. And it says that he was a wealthy man because he was a chief tax collector. I don't know whether he was getting a, a piece, you know, skimming off the top of what the guys that worked for him. I don't know that. But he was wealthy. Maybe he had a place in the high rent district over near Herod's uh, winter palace because Herod the king had built a, a winter palace down in Jericho. Maybe that's part of what it was. So we know that about him. We know he was short. We know that he was purposeful. We know that he was used to gaining the advantage, which I've already explained. And here he is, up a tree, out on a limb. And I, I don't think he's alone. That's what I think. I think that on those branches with him, our kids. If I'm a 10-year-old kid in Jericho and it's feast days and we've got all kinds of people in town. We've got caravans coming through. We've got people from the east and the north and the south. And, and I hear that Jesus has just healed that guy that's so annoying on the edge of town, that blind Bartimaeus. I'm going to get a better position. So they're up a tree. And here comes the little short guy. You say, is that in the Bible? No. No, no. That's in my head. But you were 10 years old. Where would you be if there was a big deal going on and you could get a better view? You'd be where you could get a better view, which is up a tree. People aren't going to let you in their houses to go up on the roof and look. you got to climb a tree. So here we are with a tree festooned with kids. And they're saying, Zach, yes, find your own. My grandmother hates you. You know, stuff like that. (laughs) And here they are. Getting a closer look at Jesus' work. And I ask myself, what do you do right now, folks, to get a clearer look at Jesus? I don't, I don't mean the institutionalized Jesus. I don't, I don't mean just a little religious denominational Jesus that sort of gets boxed in if we're not careful. Because we've had 2,000 years to add stuff to the raw Jesus walking through Jericho. That Jesus. That Jesus who when you walked into his presence... It was magnetic, apparently, because all the crummy people in town, according to the social elite, were attracted to him. It was like moths to a light. That's apparently how it was. That's the Jesus I'm interested in. That one. That one of whom it is said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That one of whom it is said he was the creator of the universe. Without him, nothing was made. The Jesus that speaks galaxies into existence. That's the one of which I want and need a better look. I, I want to look at the Jesus who is the great I am. I want to look at the Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. I want to look at the Jesus who is the resurrection and the life. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I want to look at the Jesus who is the Lamb of God who gives his life for the redemption of mankind. And is also the Lion of Judah roaring out of Zion. That's the Jesus I want to be looking at. Where do you get that look? How do you get that look? I've said it before, but I'm going to say it again. There's only so much information 2,000 years down the road of the story of Jesus. And that's it. Out of the whole Bible... You can read the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John out loud in eight hours. That's all there is, but it's more than enough. You say, if, if I read that, will I understand everything? No, but I don't understand myself. Why would I expect to understand all there is to know of God? What I will be doing when I read this is I'll get pointed in the right direction. What will happen if I authentically read this is I'll, I'll, I'll be disturbed. I will be mesmerized. I'll be encouraged. I'll be frustrated because there's so much mystery connected with him. Ruth and I were having a conversation a while back and saying, you know, God is so mysterious. And, when he, and her comment was something to the effect, well, if, if he loses his mystery, he's not God then, is he? This is, this is the God who gives us this much about him to understand the core things that are important to my whole life and when I read him straight on not even through an interpretation although I love commentators and I love the scholars they help me because I don't understand a lot of the culture and stuff but when I read this it's powerful you won't get any class at any university in the United States of which I'm aware if you can find one I'd be pleased just on Jesus at least not any secular state university, you won't. But why wouldn't you have a class on this Jesus if like over 2 billion people on the planet follow him in some fashion? Why wouldn't you like have a class on, just on him, just on this? You can go to a Christian college and get a class on the gospels. But this idea is profound. I I would say I can get a better shot, a better look at Jesus if I'm in a little group with three or four of you. Because when we start telling our stories and you start telling me about when you were up a tree and out on a limb and Jesus intersected your life and what happened there, I get a better understanding of how he works in people's lives. So that's a better, a better look at Jesus when I hear it from you because when you tell me your story, you also tell me his. Or if I question folks who have spent time with him, find some old dude. Not, not like me. I'm just upper middle age. I'm 75. You, you, need, you, need some, you need somebody who's like 93. Go find some older woman or somebody who's been 90 times around the sun and ask them. When I was president of this little college, I used to bring 89-year-old people to talk to the college students. And, and you don't just bring an 89-year-old people and let them go because they go all over. I mean, they just, you know, because they, they, they have so many stories and they've been so many places and they don't get it straight. And it's fun. But you know, So I would interview them. Because it's important for a 19-year-old who has just started following Jesus to hear from an 89-year-old what happened 70 years down the road when you've followed him all your life and been through the rough patches and the heartbreaks and the joys. It's important for a 19-year-old to hear it from an 89-year-old. You ponder his actions when you read him because no one in, in history is more interesting Larry King, who used to be on the TV and radio a lot interviewing people, when asked if he could interview anybody in history who he'd like to interview the most, he said, Jesus Christ. Because there's no one more interesting than he is. I can take you to the Library of Congress. You've heard me say this dozens of times. I can take you to the Library of Congress where there are millions of copies of books, all the books written in the United States generally find their way to the Library of Congress. So the 50, 60 million books. There are more books about this 33-year-old carpenter rabbi executed by the state 2,000 years ago than any other person. Abraham Lincoln and Napoleon are a distant second. Why would the most powerful country ever on planet Earth have more books about this Jewish rabbi than anybody else? You say, well, maybe it's our Puritan roots or something. I don't think so. I think it's because there's nobody more interesting than he is, and more people write about him than anybody else. And then, and then all you have to do is run across one of his questions, and that'll bring me up short. So I'm reading it, and I say to him, or he says to me, Foth, it, Foth's not in here, but, but he says, <laughs> Foth, ponder this. What shall it profit you if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul, lose your own being, who you are? Well, you know, I'll chew on that for quite a while. That's not like a nanosecond response right there. So so I run to the path of totality to get a better look. And what do I find when I get there? What I find when I get there is point two. The response of Jesus is greater than your effort. The response of Jesus to your effort is greater than your effort. Let me say it again. The response of Jesus is greater than your effort. Sir Isaac Newton, great scientist back in the day, had three laws of motion. And the third third law of motion says for every action, there is an equal and opposite what? Reaction. That's true. If I'm pushing something and I'm on roller skates, that thing goes that far and I go this far, depending on weight or mass or velocity, whatever it is, because it's an equal opposite. But in human relationships, that's not true. Because oftentimes, this action won't elicit an equal reaction. It'll be more. It'll be an over-the-top reaction, depending on what it is that's said, good or bad. And for Jesus, that's absolutely not true. Because all Jesus is looking for in this path of totality is an opening. That's all he's looking for. And Zacchaeus up in a tree, getting a better look, is an opening for the creator of the universe. He's already coming our way. He's already coming to us and by us. So I don't have to go hunt him. He's coming. That's how it is. I've told you this before a number of times, but when we were in D.C. and on Capitol Hill, I was trying to look for, religious, for non-religious language to talk about Jesus on Capitol Hill. And this idea of place came to mind, and here's the, just a few phrases that I came up with. Jesus says, folks, here's the deal. I'll leave my place. I'll come to your place. I'll take your place, take all your junk and swap it out for my glory and goodness, and then we'll go to my place. So here's the good news in a nutshell I'll leave my place, I'll come to your place, I'll take your place, then we'll go to my place. When When I think about that, what it says to me is that Jesus is aggressively kind. When he goes up to Jerusalem and is nailed to a cross by the Romans, that's what you call aggressive kindness on his part. People say the Roman nails held him there and the old saw was no, his love held him there, and I believe that to be true. But he's aggressively kind. He sees Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus come down immediately because I must come and stay at your house. All he needed was an opening, and there he was. I'm a 36-year-old I'm a young college president going to this little college and uh, in California, they have financial troubles. They've got, it's owned by one denomination. They don't have enough resources. People are upset with the administration. They're talking behind their backs and all this kind of stuff. And here they invite me to come and be president. And they had a big meeting in Redding Municipal Auditorium in Redding, California. 700 pastors and delegates for this group. They had Mike set up in the aisle to debate stuff. And they said, why don't you just, and this was the corporation that owned the college. They said, why don't you say your dream for the college? And so I said these three or four things. I want to see students here who are always learners, who always have a heart for Jesus, and so forth. And then they said, and by the way, we need a $100,000 in the next 60 days just to make budget, apparently. I'm not sure that I picked that up going in. I don't know what happened. but But that'd be like a million bucks today, or $2 million in 60 days. And the people were disgruntled. So you're not going to... Get to, and I said, I don't know what we're going to do, but we, we need a hundred grand in the next 60 days. And I just sat down, and a guy jumped up over there. A pastor said, Our church would like to give $1,000 to that need. Somebody else jumped up and said, Our church would give $1,000. Somebody else said, We'll give it. Th- we got $32,000 like in 20 minutes. And then we had to break for a meeting an evening service, came back the next day. They said, say a few more things. And it started over again. We had youth groups saying, we'll get 50 bucks. And another youth group saying, we'll do better. We'll do a hundred like it's poker. I'll see that. And raise it with a, I don't even know how to play poker, but I, you know, they were doing that. And, and then a young guy, a young married guy walked down the aisle, late twenties, I think, walked up and said, I've always wanted to go to Beth in college, but three years ago we were pregnant. So we couldn't go. And then we had kidney surgery. And now we were going to go this fall. This is in April. And, um, We found out we're pregnant, which is great, but we can't go to college. But we really feel like we're supposed to give $200 to this need, but we don't have $200. But we're going to trust God for it in the next 60 days. He walks back. He's weeping. He goes back, and as he sits down, an old man jumps up in the back of the auditorium and says, Son, you just got your 200 bucks. You know, and people start cheering, and this guy jumped up and says, And we'd, our church would like to pay for your baby expenses. And somebody else said, We'll, we'll take care of the first year of college if he enrolled this fall. And somebody, we got him through his junior year in three minutes. That thing, that thing took off, and by the end of three hours, they had committed $154,000. They paid for two babies. They were giving money to each other, high five and whistling. It was crazy. And people said, Boy, that was great, folks, that you had that faith. It wasn't me. It was that first guy over there that jumped up and said, we'll give a $1,000. When he did that, the Holy Spirit said, there's an opening, and in he came. And people in Northern California and that group will never forget April of 1978 at the Reading Municipal Auditorium because all Jesus is looking for in the path of totality is an opening. Point three and I'm done. A transformed life has a ripple effect. Transformed life has a ripple effect. He spends the entire day with a local bad guy, chief tax collector. It was like wildfire. it had to be like wildfire in the town. We don't know how Zacchaeus knew Jesus was coming. Maybe the word went out. He just healed blind Bartimaeus. Maybe, maybe, and he ran and got in the tree. All we know is that everything changed that day because he healed Bartimaeus and he healed Zacchaeus at the same time. I, I I've been working on this phrase all week. The highest moment in Zacchaeus' life was in the lowest city on earth. I just like saying that. doesn't, but, but the fact is it changed him and it affected others. Transformation always has a ripple effect. So how do I recognize if, if one's life is being transformed? Well, the two things we deal with our whole lives are relationships and money. Those are the two things. Apart from the great ideas that move us, those are the two things. So if I'm being transformed, it affects my relationships in a positive way. And it affects how I see dollars in a positive way. Because this is my life, and the money is my life the second time around. I've gone and earned money, and now I get to invest or hoard or be stingy or be generous or whatever it is. And here is Zacchaeus who says, half of what I have I'll give to the poor, and if I've ripped anybody off, I'll do, you know, four times. And, you know, that's just how it is. What I find when I'm being transformed is that what drives me, what drove me before doesn't drive me now. My goals and my methods shift. What I do and how I do it just changes. Listen to how Paul says it. Paul says it this way in Philippians 3. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I've lost all things, I consider them garbage that I might gain Christ. Going to verse 10, it says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection, participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Later, or at another time, he says to the Roman church, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. I'm done. I just have two more things to say. We preachers always close three times, okay? If I could look back in my life and do a roll call of all the people I have watched be transformed, we'd be here for weeks. Hundreds, thousands of people in various places. But when I think of the university starting here, and that's where we started, Ruth and I, 24 years old, doing a church plant at the University of Illinois. And I see a young Jewish kid from the north side of Chicago who's messed up and his life was transformed by Jesus. And if I took you to him today, he and his wife have been following Jesus all these years. They're grandparents now, and he's a doctor in Chicago. Or, or that other kid, David, who came and sat in overalls. This was the 70s. Some of you remember this, barefoot with overalls here in the front. He was a, a dope. And I could take you now, he's an OBGYN in, in Michigan. Not all transformed lives become doctors. I'm just saying those are two that come to mind. Then the guy who was working on a master's in electrical engineering, and he came to church because the person who sold him dope came to Jesus, and so he came to church, and he's been a missionary in Eastern Europe for 40 years, a transformed life. Or you could go with me to Washington, D.C., and hear the story of Chuck Colson, this brilliant attorney who he said he'd walk over his grandmother to get political things done. He was in the Nixon White House. He went to prison over the Watergate Affair in 1974. And along the way, he slid into the path of totality because some guys loved him. And they loved him in the spirit of Jesus and it revolutionized his life. And when he got out of prison, he started this thing called the Prison Fellowship to help people be free even when they were behind bars. There are thousands and thousands of men and women in this country, some still in prison, some out doing good things. Because Chuck Colson was totally transformed on that day and said, I'll take all of my skills and all of my acumen and all of my stuff, and I'll focus it on Jesus. The other stuff is garbage. I will focus it on him, and we'll see what we can do to help people who find themselves in bad places. That's a transformed life. I don't need more things. What I need is to hear him say, come down from that awkward place up there, because I am coming to your house. And when I come to your house, my grace and my forgiveness will wash over you and you will never, ever be the same. Let's bow our hearts in prayer. As we bow in prayer this morning, there may be some here who say, Dick, I'm I'm not in the path of totality. I may I may be flirting with the edges. I may be out in a gray place or a just dark place, but something inside me is tugging. There's a tug or a whisper. I believe that's the Holy Spirit. I believe that's God looking for an opening. And you you would just say, I'd like you to include me in your prayer as you pray right now. And you just slip up a hand to indicate that. I'm not gonna call you up to the front or anything. Just yes, I see your hand. Just put up a hand. Yep. Yep, yes, I see you. I see you in the back. I see you. You may put your hand down. I see you, honey. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your grace. Thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit in this room, in this living room of our lives. I pray for these who have raised a hand that your spirit and your Your movement will be so real as they they make a commitment this day to take the Jesus who's walking through head on, to be absolutely in the center place so that when he notices us, if you will, that we respond in ways that we never dreamed we could. I pray for your grace and your forgiveness for resurrection life because that's who you are and that's what you want for us. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, Amen.